Welcome. Um, thanks for your prayers. My family and I are better. Uh, I still wore my mask today. I won't like shout at anyone in the front row or anything. Um, but yeah, we were sick. Laura had COVID. I probably had it too. And um, we're feeling a lot better. We're thankful for your prayers. So, so I wasn't here last week. Um, this morning we get to do Ecclesiastes. Um, if you're visiting, we're we're doing a, a series in Sunday school called Eat This Book, where we do one book of the Bible every each week. And so I get to teach on Ecclesiastes this morning. And um, what I want to do is just read a little bit of it and then pray, and then we'll launch into it. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, and a few verses after. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's like, hey, all right, good morning. Good, good. You woke up for this, all right? No, it's God's word, and it's good news, and we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word that is so multifaceted. Thank you for your word that has such diversity within it, that it speaks to the human heart in all aspects of life. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. God, we pray that you would use this book to give us wisdom and the wisdom of the cross. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We pray that you would use this book to help us appreciate the gospel all the more. We pray that you would use this book to remind us that you know our hearts and you know what it's like to live in a fallen world with all its frustrations and vexations. And we pray, Father, that you would stir up our hope this morning. We pray that you'd comfort our hearts and we pray that you would use this book to give us wisdom to speak uh, to others who are experiencing what um, the writer experiences throughout the book. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes. So if you look up here, this is a drawing by an artist named M.C. Escher, and he's famous for his confusing drawings. If you pay close enough to attention, your, your head will start hurting, you know, because the way he shades the stairs, you're like, oh, it's going up. Oh, wait, no, it's not. And so I use that not only because I was an art major at a hippie college, but also because I think it, it's, it's an interesting take on this book. I call it Perspective from the Bottom by Someone at the Top. And what do I mean by that? I mean that I believe that Solomon wrote this book, the majority of it, except the postscript maybe, you know, about him. And, um, and he was someone who was at the top. And we'll, we'll look at that. But I believe that by the time that he wrote this book, he was at the bottom in terms of repentance. He had repented and was looking back at his life um, from a standpoint of repentant faith in the Lord. And so, uh, if you, raise your hand if you've read Ecclesiastes before. Okay, if not, don't be embarrassed. Um, if you haven't read Ecclesiastes, boy, you're in for a wild ride this morning. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes has all kinds of stuff that does not sound super Christian-y at first blush. 
all right? It sounds very hopeless. It's kind of cynical. Like, you'd be wearing a black T-shirt and Doc Martens. That's a 90s reference. If, uh, if, if you're super into this book, you know. Um, there's a professor named Jaron Bars from Covenant College who I really like a lot. And he got saved through, through reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you might not think, hey, this would make a great evangelistic track. But actually, it, it does. When I was in college, there's this Britpop band called Blur in the 90s that I really liked. And, I, and before I got to go live and study in London for five months on a mission trip and then a study abroad thing, I got to see Blur in concert at this British band in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. And using the book of Ecclesiastes, I wrote out this tract. I like actually made a tract from the book of Ecclesiastes. It was all my handwriting, all these things. I was a zealous 20-year-old, you know. And, um, and so I waited after the concert. I went to see Blur, and I waited after the, the concert. And all these girls were like, you're a god, to Damon Albarn, the singer, as he comes out, you know, probably high and stuff, getting into the, the limo. And, and I was like, I, 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 as he walked by, I like handed him this paper, and maybe like his bodyguard took it for him or something. But um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. But, um, but so why do we call it <clears throat> Ecclesiastes? Well, um, the English title is simply a transliteration of <clears throat> the Greek word Ecclesiastes, which is the title found in the Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew title is Kohelet, which means preacher or one who calls the assembly together to preach to them. Uh, one commentator mentioned that it may refer actually to Solomon's role as the convener of a kingly assembly to share his last words to Israel. Uh, there's a themes throughout the book of like, you work, you, you work this hard and you try to be wise and then when you die, you know, you give it to the one after you. And is he a fool or is he wise? What's going to happen? You know, Solomon's son Rehoboam <laughs> took over and we know that did not go so hot. You know, the whole kingdom divided during that time. Um, so authorship and date. There are very intelligent, wise, godly commentators who disagree with me about the authorship, but I am convinced from the internal evidence of the text of Ecclesiastes compared with the rest of the scriptures that Solomon actually did write this book. And, and as you'll see, it's very important to me that Solomon wrote this book because that frames my understanding of actually what's happening in this book. And so you may be convinced by what I'm saying, you may not be, but I hope you are because to me, it opened up the book to me and kind of helped me um, see what God, I believe, what God's doing in this book for us. So um, I'll get into more reasons in a second, but um, it starts off with the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, yes, there were other kings later on in Jerusalem, but we'll, we'll look at that. Um, so Solomon died around 931 B.C., and he most likely wrote this toward the end of his life. So I said probably around 9, just shortly before 931 B.C. is around that time when he, he wrote it. All right, so as you'll see, it's important to me to defend the fact that I believe that Solomon wrote this. So we're not going to go into a ton of stuff about it, but I do want to cover a few things. So the first is the royal chronology. So 
some of the people I read that did not believe that Solomon wrote this had certain reasons, and one of the reasons they gave was that um, in Ecclesiastes 1.16, the writer says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So if Solomon, you know, the son of David, was reigning in Jerusalem, it, at first glance it seems weird that he would say, God's given me wisdom more than all who were ever ruling before me in Jerusalem, right? It's like, oh, all like, oh, I don't know, David, okay, yeah, and Saul. But Saul wasn't in Jerusalem, so anyway. Uh, David would be it, David. Now, maybe the Jebusite rulers count too, whatever. But uh, what, what I want you to see is this is actually used about Solomon uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it's just, it's a way, it's a manner of speaking, okay? So um, look at, so First Chronicles 29, 25 says, And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. You see that same kind of language? Now, it's Israel, not Jerusalem, but oh, that, that, that just adds Saul, right? Saul was the only other king. So it's a manner of speaking. It's, it's used about Solomon explicitly elsewhere in Scripture. And so I believe that, 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 that those words were still um, by Solomon. And then also the life setting. Um, the details of the author's life fit Solomon and Solomon alone. Even those who deny that Solomon wrote the book acknowledge this and claim that the author styled himself as Solomon. You know, they're like, well, Solomon didn't write it. Someone else wrote it. But he kind of wrote sort of pretending like he was Solomon. I don't think that's a good argument. All right? And I think the fact that they would say that, they were compelled to say that because there's all this stuff that's only true of Solomon. So no king was greater or would be greater than Solomon in terms of wisdom and riches. So I want to read 1 Kings 3, 10 to 13 to you. 1 Kings 3, 10 to 13. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. All right? And so if someone after Solomon wrote that, it wouldn't be true. Does that make sense? No one before you is greater. No one after you will be greater. Therefore, it has to be Solomon who wrote this. Does that make sense? All right. Because that's really important. So I'm glad we're on the same roller coaster still. No one hopped off and to go to the bathroom or anything. Okay. So Solomon's question in this book, what's the point? What's the point? 
You know, we have days where we're like, yes, the Lord's sovereign, woo, you know. But then also there are some days where we're like, are you serious? Like, I know God's good and everything, but like, come on. You know, when things happen that you're like, this makes no sense. You know, this person dies who was like, he had just finished. I think Joel told me a story about this. Like, someone who had just finished seminary and they were like, had this promising life ahead of them and their family like suffered all these things for them to get and then boom they die right after that like right they're about to launch out of the mission field and they get hit by a car and die on the way home from their send-off meeting or whatever you know you're like come on god really like what is this and what's beautiful about this book is that god gave us a book under the inspiration of the holy spirit where solomon the wisest man besides jesus who ever lived is asking those same questions to me, that, that is a great comfort, all right? And so what I believe we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is through Solomon, we see earthly perplexities, pleasures, and pursuits from the wisdom of an eternal perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, he, at, especially at the end of the book, we're called to, well, throughout the book, we're called to remember God and to, ha- to look beyond this life but also it's from an eternal perspective, you know, that there is eternity, that we see the vanity of this life. We have a better perspective on what happens, quote, under the sun, which is a phrase that Solomon uses often. And so when we think about the word vanity, what, what does that mean? Um, well, it's the Hebrew word that we translate vanity is hevel, which means vapor or mist. And I believe that part of the main kind of idea behind it is temporariness. You know, the, Solomon also uses the phrase, like, this too is vanity and grasping for the wind. So it's like you're trying to build something permanent. You're trying to build with brick, you know, and stone. And you're building with, like, rice cakes that that dissolves in the rain you know you, you you're trying to establish something in this life under the sun and it's like it's elusive and it all passes away all right and so what i said was it seems that the fact of death and temporary and the temporariness of life are the air that we breathe in this book throughout the book there's this constant shadow of death and there's this constant kind of gnawing reminder that all of this is temporary and that whatever you're trying to do to kind of like get traction or build something, and again, this is the wisest guy ever lived under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's like, yeah, it's in one sense, it doesn't matter. Now, obviously, in Christ, our labor is not in vain. We'll talk about it. but, but, But there is a real sense in which yeah, none of that matters. Like, oh, cool, you built a new garden. Well, how long is that going to last? You know, oh, cool, you did a remodel on your house. Well, that's great. How long is that going to last? Like, time and decay and entropy happen. And so what, what does that point us to? Well, it drives us to ask the question, where can we find meaning and purpose in a fallen, dying world? What's the point? Why do all these things that we do? Why go to work? Why have a nice meal? Like, and it can, it can sound very depressing and can kind of drive you to despair. 
But these are very wise questions to ask because the fruit of those questions by the guidance of God's word is, is great and is hopeful and it gives you great wisdom as you think about life and what you put your priorities on and, and kind of what you expect to get out of what you do in this life, okay? So, um, I said, we labor amid thorns. How can we approach life when God's providential plan feels unjust and without purpose? And we'll see, there, if you read the book, there, throughout the book, there are these things of like, this just seems a great evil under the sun that, you know, someone works really hard and they, they, they do well and they amass this wealth and then they die and then it goes to their foolish son who squanders it or whatever. Like, it's like, this does not... If, if this is God's plan, it doesn't feel like a good plan, okay? And he's not being blasphemous by acknowledging those feelings, okay? We see that throughout the Psalms. All right, so what's the point? Why are we, why are we here? Okay. Um, did you use a Robin Leach slide at one of your, cla- in one of your classes? Probably. I feel like I stole this from you, but anyway. Um, okay, so the pleasure pioneer. Uh, so imagine that there's rea- this new reality show that comes out where like corporation after corporation just invests billions and billions of dollars to let's throw at someone. And they get to take the money and do whatever they want with it. And then, you know, at the end of each episode, they're, sort of, they're interviewed by the people producing the show. Like, so what's this like? You know, what, what is it like to have everything you've always wanted, whenever you want it, however you want it, what's that like? Well, in one sense, that's exactly what God did with Solomon. Um, He asked for wisdom, and then God threw in all these riches, but there was a purpose to this. And what I say is, it's as if Solomon had his clipboard with him the entire time. He actually uses the phrase, my wisdom remained with me, even when he was doing all these crazy things, and it's a mystery, but it was like an experiment. It's like God's going to give a human being everything you could ever want and the wisdom to assess its value. And then he can hand that wisdom off to you for free and you don't have to go and screw up your life you know, to get this same kind of wisdom. You don't have to marry 700 wives and 300 concubines to figure out, wait a second, this doesn't seem to really satisfy. You know, after the 436th wife, maybe you kind of realize, like, this is not Jesus coming back, right? All right. So I want to read to you Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 10, about this pleasure pioneer. <clears throat> Actually, let me, uh, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So pause. Do you see those emphases there? What, what, the few days of our life. Life is a vapor. Life is a breath. And so my wisdom remained with me, he said, right? <clears throat> my wisdom remaining with me 
I, I'm going to do this experiment of like, what's life all about? I'm going to suck all the juice out of life and see what happens. But I've got my wisdom with me. And I will tell you the true meaning and value of it. Okay? And this is mysterious. <clears throat> he said, verse 4, you know, think about Home Depot on Saturday mornings, right? I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. <clears throat> I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. He just throws that in there like, oh yeah, of course, many concubines, right? The delight of the children of man. I mean, he's basically like Hugh Hefter. I'm not trying to sound weird, but he, this is like the Playboy Mansion. Is basically got all these concubines. The delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. There's that weird phrase again, right? Like, well, how, if you got all these concubines, how can you say your wisdom remains with you? I believe that God still gave him an accurate understanding and assessment of these things while he was kind of going off the deep end through all. Does that make sense? That he, he could not get away from the fact that this was folly, that this was not what life is meant to be. But he's proving that to everyone else. He's like, well, but man, if I just, someone's like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but eh, eh, nope, you know. But if I just, nope, 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 right? All right, so through Solomon, we see every earthly pleasure and endeavor from the wisdom of an eternal perspective. Okay, so what are some of Solomon's discoveries? Well, the first one, and we'll read the end of the book at this point. The first one is take God seriously, right? He took pleasure seriously. He took wine seriously. He took like wine, women, and song, male and female singers, wine, concubines, literally wine, women, and song. He took that very seriously. And he's like, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This, didn't, this doesn't do it for you, all right? And so I'm going to read the end of the book of, what, of his conclusion. And it's um, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. In fact, since my voice is kind of wearing out, would someone read uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14 with a good, strong, loud voice? I'll start, I'll start calling on people if you don't read it. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God 
Okay, good. Thank you. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you were watching the Pleasure Pioneer reality show and it was like season seven final episode and you're there and Solomon's all mic'd up and he's on the screen like, okay, so can you just sum up all this whole thing for us? Yep, fear God and keep his commandments. The ratings wouldn't be so awesome, you know, after that, but fear God and keep his commandments. Now we know... You know, Solomon also wrote Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we talked about that last time I taught that the fear of the Lord is not just a, it's not a slavish fear and just be terrified of God all the time. It is a right relationship with gospel faith and the living, righteous, holy God is a consuming fire where you take God seriously. You take his warning seriously but guess what? You also take his love seriously. Remember Ephesians 3. He says you've been rooted and planted in love. Are you going to see yourself on a daily basis that way or not? Are you going to blow God's grace off and be like, well, I know it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I'm a little worse than that. Right? Or are you going to take God's word of grace seriously and not walk in that cloud over your head? but smile and give thanks at the freedom of forgiveness of sins, right? The fear of the Lord doesn't just mean being terrified of the Lord. It means taking his words of love as well, deeply, deadly, seriously, where you allow it to shut the mouth of the devil and of your own flesh. Amen? Right? Fear God and keep his commandments, right? What are his commandments? Love God Love other people. That's the summary of all of it. What is life all about? It's about love, right? It's about receiving God's love through faith and reflecting that love through faith to God, one another, and those who don't yet know him. That's what life's all about. It's about knowing God's love and sharing God's love. That's what it's about. So take God seriously. <clears throat> Before we move on, any thoughts about that? What... What, what are you thinking as you're hearing these things? Solomon had one commandment that he was thoroughly known that God gave to the sons of Israel. Mm -hmm. And that was that they were not to multiply their wives but only seven. Yep. And so and Saul violated that, mm -hmm. David violated that, and Solomon violated that even more. That's true. And so, you know, he knew that. Mm-hmm. Good point. Sure. Yeah, good point. I don't know if everyone heard Ken, but he was making the point that so Solomon knew God's command for kings not to multiply wives because they would turn your heart against the Lord. And he did it anyway. But God gave him the wisdom to assess, yeah, this is really stupid and didn't work out so well for me. Y'all don't do this. Fear God and keep his commandments, right? What are some other thoughts that come to mind? What's, what's God kind of stirring up in you besides lunchtime um, <clears throat> this morning? 
Yeah. point said first corinthians 13 if i if i have all wisdom and don't have love i've got nothing right i'm a, a clanging symbol right what about others of you anything that comes to mind about fear god and keep his commandments as the summary from someone who lived the craziest life you know lived all that you people would ever want <clears throat> right him living for himself um, and going back to so I built all these gardens I did all these things but vanity of vanities it's all vanity it's all passing away <clears throat> if you're trying to establish something under the sun and you're frustrated because the sand castles keep getting kicked down right what what are you trying to do and what are you wrestling with Think about that. What are you trying to, what, what's, what's behind that, and then what is frustrating you? What are you wrestling with? Think about the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Adam and Eve. What are you, what are you trying to do, and what, what's happening there? What are you wrestling with? Who's God? Good. Cheryl said, who's God? Are you God, or is God God? That's exactly right. And I think what we see here in this, in Solomon's life is, you know, you, no, you can be God, right? And what he's showing is we think we can be God and we try to build our own kingdoms, but it's like the reality of death is a mercy. It's kind of like when, when God set the cherubim in front of the tree to guard the way to the tree of, <clears throat> of life. You know, lest they eat and live forever. It's like death is a mercy to a rebellious people. The futility of life. You know, the Bible, we'll, get, we'll read this later, but God subjected creation to futility in hope. And, and he uses the fact that your shed you built in 15 years is going to start rotting and have termites in it. He uses that frustration, just like the Tower of Babel, Remember? They were united in their rebellion in one language. So what did God do? He disintegrated their rebellion. He pulled it apart through confusing their languages. He's lovingly frustrating our illusions that we can be in control of our lives, that we can be our own God, that we can build our own kingdom, and we don't really need God. You see? And I think that's a big part of this is like, all of us, no matter how Christian-y we are, still want to build our own kingdoms at some level. And God is lovingly going, that's like, it ain't going to happen. And as soon as you realize it ain't going to happen, you can actually chill out and love the Lord and enjoy your life. Joel. I was going to say that, that really resonates also with the end of the book of Job, hmm. uh, which is the first uh, of those wisdom books. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And there's a sense in which 
and uh, Solomon, in his pleasures, yes. both discover that the secret is recognizing that God is God and I am not God. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. So there's a sense in which we take God seriously, right? But then within the context of the rest of Scripture, don't take yourself too seriously, right? God is God. Take him seriously. You're not God. Don't take yourself so seriously. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. Absolutely, uh, right. But just don't be surprised when what you build is going to fall apart. Yeah, no, that's really you're you're right. Is the lives of men and the gospel. Sure. And along the way, if we get to create and build gardens and all that yes. stuff, that's okay. But it's going to it's going to go away. Well, and the, all of our creative endeavors are express are meant to be expressions of love, right? So, like, you do a habitat for humanity build. I'm not going to go on the job site and go, vanity of vanities, you know, why are you doing this, right? You know, like, this is stupid, man, it's going away. No, it, it, yes, it's temporary, but there's real meaningful love that happens when the image bearers of God use their gifts to bless and serve one another, right? So it's absolutely meaningful, right? Go ahead, Kate. But you just became such a nice knowledge for us. Yes. You know, when we invite our friends over and show hospitality. Sure. Right. All because we're made in the image of our creator God. Amen. <coughs> but when we start to put our identity in that, mm -hmm. or you know, when we start to build our little kingdoms instead of building his kingdom, mm. that's where we get off. And he mm. says, you know, let me give you my eternal perspective, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that the beautiful creative things don't destroy you. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Those are good points. Joel? I was, um, it made me think of, I had a, a friend who died and went to heaven. And uh, I remember walking one time and looking up and seeing his name on the side of a building. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, it's very pleasant. He yeah. never mentioned it. And yeah. He never talked about it. Uh, he was a doctor. And he helped sick people. Um, and he was never working Sure, sure. He was not doing the work that God had called him to do in order to achieve a name for himself. Mm. He was simply actively involved one-on-one -on -one with the very unique uh, image bearer of God mm -hmm. who he saw as his creator. Hmm. And he saw that as the reason for what God had given him in order to build something. Yeah, that's right. Help this person. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so God I honors people. People will remember him. <coughs> right. Know who this person is a hundred years from now. They'll see his name on the side of a, of a building, and yeah. you have this sort of quasi uh, permanent until 
Right. Yeah, sure. Right, sure. He was doing it simply to love and serve, and so we're going to be like a song, or we build a building, or we're yeah. building, or whatever we do with our work. Um, it should do it, I think, for the sake of blessing people, mm -hmm. rather than aggrandizing ourselves or, or glorifying ourselves. Hmm. Maybe that's part of some of it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that love endures forever, and that everything that we do as children of God is meant to be love, right? And that does endure forever because those those relationships, you know, there's a resurrection. Tim? Good. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. Let me um, let me read to you from uh, Ecclesiastes nine verses seven through ten. And this is what I mean by don't take yourselves too seriously. It says, "Go." Eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So pause. God has already approved what you do. What does that sound like? Sounds like justification, doesn't it? You know, live your life. God has already accepted you. You are already accepted, right? So don't take yourself too seriously. You're not working to be accepted. You're already accepted. He goes on. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Again, that doesn't mean meaningless. It means temporary, right? But yeah, it sounds good. Like that would be a great anniversary card, right? <laughs> all the days of your vain life, our vain marriage. Woo! Okay. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, this is from a certain perspective and when taken in light of the rest of the scriptures, this is wisdom. It's like, yes, you do your work and, you know, you do, you clean the floor and then it's dirty the next day and you clean the floor and you do the laundry and guess what? Your kids keep wearing clothes and so you got to do the laundry again. You're like, this is stupid. Why am I, what am I accomplishing here? It keeps getting undone and redone and undone and redone. And it's like, no, this is good and it's legit. And then chill out together. Like, don't take yourself too seriously as well, you know? Yes, give to missions, but if you want to buy a nicer bottle of wine for anniversary, do that too. I believe that's sort of the implication here. Like, yes, do those things, but also trust God enough to know that it's a gift from him to even be able to enjoy his good gifts. That's one of the things that Solomon says elsewhere in the book is 
you know, not only are these good gifts from God, and you need God to have these good gifts, unless God, the Holy Spirit, opens your eyes and enables you to actually enjoy them, it's a great evil on the earth to have good gifts and to not be able to enjoy them. So to have good gifts and to refuse to slow down enough to receive and enjoy good gifts from God, whatever those are for you. Some, for some it may be wine, for some that's not wine. That's fine, but the point is we also honor God by resting and receiving as well as working and giving. And that is an incredibly important thing. You know, when Noel was visiting here with us um, and I got to talk to him, I just asked him, I was like, I cannot, I, said, I cannot imagine what it's like to be in a situation where it's like, well, I could buy my wife a shirt for $26 or I could feed these kids. You know, it's like, how do you live like that? Where, you know, we're far away, so it's like, yeah, you can give some to Noel to feed the kids and pay the teachers, but then you can take your wife out for dinner and it's cool. Like, you know, but if you're right there in the midst of it, how do you... How do you live with that burden? And so one of the things that I encouraged them with was what I just read to you, is that uh, like we need to trust God enough, yes, to give and all that, but also to rest that it is not ultimately on our, on our shoulders, and we are not God. We are his servants. We're his sons and daughters, but we are not God, and therefore we actually have to have faith. It's a work of faith to rest, isn't it? It's a work of faith to receive sometimes and not just give all the time for some of you. You know, I probably need to give more, you know, but you know, but you know what I mean? Like, it's a gift. And so part of the wisdom of life is like, yeah, like, <clears throat> so if you think about people who are stuck waiting for their big uh, dream of what their life is going to be like or what kind of work they're going to do, right? And, and then you look back and you're like, I never got to be a fireman. No! You know what I mean? Like, when you're a kid, you want to be a fireman. You know, like, hey, I wasn't a fireman. No! Now, again, do we want jobs that fit our gifts and all that? Of course, but it's like there is great peace and freedom in being able to see, like, okay, so I'm working this job that it's not what I thought I was going to do. Like, whatever corporate job or whatever it is, you're like, this wasn't my fantasy as a kid of what I was going to do with, like, the 40 years of my working life. And I believe what God's going like, I got you. You're okay. Like, enjoy the fruits of your labors. Don't take yourself too seriously. It is meaningful in Christ, but it is passing away. So to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? There's something beyond this that ultimately defines us. All right. Let's see here. All right, 932. All right. I'm not going to camp out on this structure thing. This is one way the New Geneva Study Bible kind of laid out the structure of the book. And notice um, limitations of pleasure, work, and wisdom. These limitations as we've talked about. You think you can get this out of it. Sorry, you can't. It's passing away, right? And the next section is work and fear before God whose work endures, right? God's work endures forever. Your work doesn't, but our work in the Lord is not in vain. Wisdom and humility before a judging God whose wisdom is unfathomable. And then the 
the vanity of vanities, and then the conclusion. All right, theological themes. We've covered a lot of this, right? God's godness and man's not godness, right? It's just so interesting, just kind of riffing on what Joel and, and others have said is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right, in Proverbs. And again, fear God, keep his commandments. Like the, the thing upon which true ultimate wisdom either stands or falls, like the, 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 the this is wisdom or not fulcrum is God is God and I am not. They're like, so the point is, your hearts will always have a striving to try to be God, even as Christians. There will be an aspect, your flesh, your remaining sin within you, that will always try to be God. That's what foolishness is, right? That's the ultimate foolishness, right? To try to be God. And so wisdom is constantly bringing us back to, you're not God, and it's okay. It's better that way, right? You're not God. All right. And then life in a fallen world, what's it all about? In light of death, how should we live? And I mentioned this earlier. God understands our perplexities. He gave us Ecclesiastes. Isn't that comforting? That these questions and these wrestlings are like, this seems really dumb. This happens and then this happens. Like, that makes no sense. And, and God's like, yeah, I know, it makes no sense. Like, within a fallen world, it's, it feels really dumb, doesn't it? And it's really frustrating and it makes you angry, right? Yeah, it makes me mad too. I hate it too. He can handle and even shares in our frustrations at the way things are. He grieves with us, right? He, so, he patiently endures things until the end, right? All right, so Jesus. How do these things point us to Jesus? First, our perplexities point us to Jesus, right? First, he is the Lord against whom Adam sinned bringing death and futility into the world, right? This futility and this death would not be here if Adam had obeyed the Lord. So obedience, life, disobedience, death. Jesus took the lessons of Ecclesiastes seriously and applied them <clears throat> in our place. He experienced frustration, right? He wept at death like Lazarus, right? He wept. And yet, he perfectly feared God and kept his commandments every single second of every single day in our place, right? So we try to usurp God and we deserve death, but Jesus died in our place and rose from the dead. So our creator came to, take, to taste death for us, to take the sting of death for us. And then he subjected all things to futility and groaning in hope. <clears throat> Romans 8. Romans 8, 20 to 22. <clears throat> I'll start with verse 18, actually. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. See that bondage to decay, right? And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So it's acknowledging that there is this futility that God subjected the creation to in hope looking to the resurrection. Yes. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. <clears throat> so our pleasures point us to Jesus. <coughs> like all the things that Solomon was trying to find ultimate meaning and purpose in life in, those pleasures are actually, yeah, we can twist them sinfully, right? But they're actually gifts of God that will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back, right? Our pleasures point us to Jesus. Every good pleasure in this life is meant to be an appetizer for the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? Jokingly, wine, women, and song, well, the table, the dance floor, and the tent, right? The, the, at the a Jewish wedding feast, I won't go into all the details, but you know, you would feast at the table, good food, all that pleasure. You'd dance on the dance floor, right? Woohoo! And then the tent was actually where the marriage would be consummated. And so there you go. That was part of the feasting, and then they come back and, and celebrate. So all the pleasures of life, feasting, dancing, marriage, points to Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb. They were all meant to be appetizers for the ultimate pleasure that is in Jesus Christ alone. And then our pursuits point us to Jesus. Our work done in the fear of God for the glory of God is noticed and rewarded by God. Remember, the New Testament emphasizes that. No one may know that you scrubbed around the little thing on the toilet to get that extra dirt, you know, that little knob down there when you get on the floor. No one else will see that you scrubbed that, but Jesus sees, and he's glad that you did, you know, that he notices, right? He notices your work, your hidden labors. And Christ, our labor is not in vain. It is an expression of his love for his glory. So to Mike's point, why build a building or design a building that's going to be destroyed eventually? Because you imaged God in that moment creating that thing and blessed people with that thing for as long as they can enjoy it, right? We image God in a temporary life. And so all of our imaging of God through our various gifts and, and acts of love matter because God delights in them. They image him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Um, almost done. Solomon points us to Jesus by contrast. Solomon became rich. Jesus, though rich in heaven, became poor. Solomon indulged himself. Jesus denied himself. Solomon was wise and famous for it. Jesus was wise, but was willing to look foolish and be publicly humiliated at the cross, right? People going, hey, if you, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? Like, what an idiot. Like, you can, if you did all these things, why don't you just jump off the cross, you moron? That's what people were saying, fulfilling the very prophetic words prophesied about them in Psalm 22. 
a thousand years earlier, right? Solomon married many women and worshipped their false gods. Jesus has one bride, the church, and had no other gods before the Lord. And then finally, obviously, when we think about death, right, and foolishness and frustration and you, you, you amass this wealth and then you die and it goes to a fool, all those things, right? Jesus died and rose again to give us his eternal life, right? Eternal life that conquers death. Jesus conquered death. And to give us his wisdom and his inheritance, right? We get all that Solomon wanted through faith for free in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, you're so good to us. Lord, thank you for Ecclesiastes and thank you for Jesus. Father, we pray that the wisdom that we've heard from your word this morning, we would apply to our lives, God. Father, thank you that it's not on our shoulders. And yet, the work that you call us to do is meaningful in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to persevere, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And God, please give us faith to rest and enjoy your good gifts, Lord. Help us to revel in our not being God and being your children, dearly loved, who depend upon their Father's care and plan for their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.